And we're going to turn in our Bibles for our reading from 2 Corinthians chapter 5. So it's page number 1778 in your Pew Bible, if you're using a Pew Bible, 1778. Paul's second letter to the church at Corinth, chapter 5. We're going to break into the chapter at verse um, 17. My friends, this is the word of the living God. It's authoritative. It's inerrant. It's uh, infallible. It's God's word to ourselves. And so we read from verse 17 of 2 Corinthians 5. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Amen. And we're going to turn in the word of God again, friends, to Romans chapter 3. Romans 3, it's page number 1736, if you're using a pew Bible, 1736, Romans 3. If you're familiar with the book of Romans, you know that Paul has concluded his argument where the whole world is guilty and accountable before God, and no one is able to make themselves acceptable to God on account of their own endeavors. Uh, Paul then in the preceding chapters moves to he moves on to explain the wonder of God's amazing love, amazing love that we have just been singing about. He goes on to explain God's amazing love and goodness. And so we're going to read Romans chapter three, breaking into this chapter at verse twenty one, reading through to verse thirty one, the end of the chapter. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God sent forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed, to demonstrate that at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and a justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Where is boasting then? It is excluded by what law? Of works? No, but by the law of faith. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. 
Or is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith, do we then make void the law through faith? Uh, Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. Amen. So uh, uh, may God add his blessing to the public reading uh, of his own precious word. Well, friends, as we as a church remember God's goodness to us over, uh, well, as I say, a, a, a work was established here way back in 1837. The church was established as a Reformed Baptist church back in 1886. So uh, close to a century and a half, there has been a witness uh, to the gospel of Jesus Christ on this very site. And as we gather today uh, in this our anniversary service, I hope you are also conscious that today we meet with millions around the world who are thanking God and celebrating the 506th anniversary of the Reformation. The Reformation was a revival in true religion. It was essentially a theological revolution, and that revolution uh, spread through Europe, spreading out across the globe, in fact, right up to the uh, present day when it has essentially reached Uh, the far ends of the earth. Uh, So with this being Reformation Sunday, I want to address this topic from the perspective of history. And then I'll go on and try and lay a a foundation for the the theological perspective that our brother John will uh, cover this evening. Uh, When we were uh, discussing about what we were going to do today, um, both of us come up with the same chapter, the same text, John was going to look at another text, but I thought, no, the two will actually complement each other as we uh, discussed it together over email. Now, if that doesn't happen, it's my fault, but God will still use it to his glory. And I'm sure there'll be a word in season for each uh, person who is uh, is gathered in. So if if you're actually interested in a bit of history and you're interested uh, in wanting to know a bit about the various aspects of the Reformation... If you want to view it from the English uh, perspective, you can view the English Reformation through the likes of Cranmer, Latimer, Ridley, and on into the uh, Puritan era into the 17th century. If you want to view uh, the Reformation from a Scottish perspective, you can do so through John Knox and on into the Covenanters again in the 17th century. If you want to consider it from the perspective of Switzerland, then obviously Calvin, Farrell, Swingley, etc. would be uh, your focus. In the Netherlands, you have the influence of the Dutch reformers, and of course in Germany, Martin Luther and his friend Philip Melanchthon. Martin Luther was a Roman Catholic monk that uh, was in the heart of this somewhat small, uh, diffident monk. God lit a spark, and that in turn ignited Uh, This reformation which has continued right up to the present day. Now in terms of the beginning, as much as a movement like this can have a a beginning, uh, historians tie it to the nailing of uh, Luther's 95 thesis to the door of the Kessel Church in Wittenberg on the 31st of October uh, 1517. Now, 
when you think of thesis, don't be thinking of it as you would in today's context, you know, where you know, it can be anything from what an undergraduate's thesis, 60 to 100 words up to whatever they do in a, in, in a doctorate, maybe, you know, uh, 300 words or whatever. But um, when we talk about the 95 thesis, we're talking about 95 points that needed to be debated, 90, 95 points of disagreement that needed discussion. Okay, so 95 points of disagreement. But the real issue for Luther was the fact that the church, of which he was an essential part, has really gone astray. Well, how has it gone astray? Well, one of the ways in which the medieval church had faltered was in the matter of forgiveness. And how a person could know that they were forgiven. And at this point in history... Uh, the then Pope, Leo the, the Tenth had dispatched one John Tetzel uh, to Germany in order to raise money for the work of the, the church. Now, Tetzel was preceded as in all great sales campaigns by a group of uh, marketeers, and in inverted commas, that went before him paving the way for these indulgences which were going to be offered by John Tetzel. Now these uh, marketeers went about making the uh, proclamation from village to village, hamlet to hamlet, basically, you know, in a few days, JT's going to be here. And when JT arrives, you will be able to buy one of these indulgences and you will be able to get your sins forgiven. Or you will be able to uh, get your loved ones released from purgatory. Well, as soon as the news about forgiveness went around, the, the people said, you know, happy days. Great. Let's live it up. And uh, we'll be able to get a ticket that covers, you know, the whole deal. And it was logical to their way of thinking. And it actually happened. Boy, they lived it up. Now, these indulgences were pieces of paper stamped with the papal seal, declaring that the purchaser of the indulgence had received par pardon. And the marketing slogans were very straightforward. You know, as soon as the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. And uh, the pardon, the pardon makes those who buy it uh, cleaner than baptism. And listen to this one. And purer, as flawless as Adam in the state of innocence in paradise. Now, how much would you be prepared to pay for one of those? And put that in your back pocket and do whatever you like. Which, of course, they did. And when Luther saw the loose living, the decadence, the debauchery, the drunkenness, he rebuked them, he rebuked them for it. And they would produce this bit of paper. Uh, and they would say, but we are forgiven. Uh, this assures us that our sins are forgiven. And it was at that point, Luther was nailing his 95 points 
uh, to the door of the Kessel Church in Wittenberg, not just the indulgences, but let's get the whole lot on the table. You know, just let's get it out there for discussion. Well, let's pause and rewind. Let's back up a little bit and fill in some, uh, some gaps. How is it that Luther is part of the system? Is actually now standing out against the system. What happened to Martin Luther? Well, the short answer is that Martin Luther actually discovered the way in which God pardons sinners. He actually discovered the way in which sinners can be forgiven their sins. And Luther was born on the 10th of November, 1483. He had been brought up in a home of a of some substance, his father was a prosperous businessman, so not a, a poor home. But both Mr. and Mrs. Luther were concerned that young Martin make the most out of his life. Um, and so in the process of seeking to obey their directives and follow their plan, he enrolled in the University of uh, Erfurt to, to study law. However, in the course of his studies, he found himself completely weighed down by a sense of sin. He was burdened by this. His burdened soul was troubled. He was burdened by a fundamental question. How on earth am I ever going to know that I have done enough to merit God's grace? And that, of course, is an oxymoron because grace can't be earned. But nevertheless, that was what he thought. In fact, uh, he was so overwhelmed by this burden that he decided the way he was going to get to the bottom of it all and find the answer to this forgiveness issue was to throw himself wholeheartedly into the religious world. And so he switches courses. He does theology. And in 1505, at the age of 22, he joined an Augustinian monastery. And then very quickly, he impressed himself upon his fellow monks. And by 1508, he is the professor of philosophy, and he's actually teaching the subject. 1511, he is sent on official business to Rome, and it was in that context that he arrives in Rome in great spiritual uh, anguish and distress. His hope, by his own testimony from his own writings was that since he was going to the epicenter of religious life, since he was going to uh, this place out of which had emerged all of these great statements concerning God, that he would be able to find that which was the answer to his burdened soul. Says one of the writers, he went to Rome as a medieval theologian, he returned from Rome, a Protestant. And that's exactly, that is actually the case. 
because it was in Rome, finding the church to be corrupt and spiritually bankrupt and impoverished, he realized that there was no salvation to be found down the standard road. And it was in that environment that he was confronted by the truth of the Bible in a way that he had never been confronted before. Now, understand this, friends. It wasn't that Luther was ignorant of the Bible. He was clear about the Bible. He, he was able to teach the Bible. But he didn't yet see what the Bible was saying. And so as he pondered the likes of Romans chapter 1, you know, uh, well, it, from a reading here, Romans chapter 3, verse 21 through 26, that John will be looking at tonight about the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. As he pondered the likes of Romans 1, 16 and 17, for I am, per, uh, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation. For everyone who believes, for the Jew first, and also for the Greek, for in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. As he pondered these verses, what he discovered was that while he'd been preoccupied with the idea of accumulating enough righteousness to make himself acceptable before God. Well, the light went on. And he realized that he had got it upside down. He realized that this is a righteousness that has been provided. It's not achieved. In fact, what he really discovered is what John Stott helpfully summarizes in the message of Romans, good news for the, for the world. Uh, says Stott, what does it mean, the righteousness of God? What does it mean, the righteousness of God? What was it that Luther discovered? Now, obviously, Martin Luther didn't have any of John Stott's books on his shelf. But nevertheless, Luther discovered what John Stott summarizes for us in his book. And as I read this, quote, note, note the verbs. The righteousness of God, number one, is the status which God requires. That's the first verse. The status that God requires if we are ever going to stand before him. Secondly, it's that which God achieves through the sacrifice of his son. Thirdly, it's that which is revealed in the gospel. And fourthly, it's that which God bestows freely on all who trust in Jesus. Requires, achieves, reveals, 
bestows. When Martin Luther realized this, he said, I felt myself absolutely born again. Have you ever been born again? He says, I have I felt myself absolutely born again. The gates of paradise had been flung open and I had entered. There and then the whole Bible took on a new look for me. Or another look for me. Now that makes perfect sense, doesn't it? Because the Bible is understandable, isn't it? Well, it's understandable in the sense that we know verbs, pronouns. Nouns, adjectives, and so on. We can read the Bible, it's in English. But for many of us, we would be able to say, you know, for years and years, we read this. And even though we read it, even though it was taught to us, even though we memorized parts of it, it didn't mean a thing to us. But then suddenly the light came on. And how did that happen? Well, I know not how the Spirit moves. Convincing men of sin. But suddenly the evidence of the light going on. Is seen in the life of those who are born again and have entered in. As we're seeing in our little study on Sunday mornings on the fruit of the Spirit. For those of you who are regular. And as a result of that encounter and that discovery in Rome, Luther goes back again to Wittenberg and quickly becomes a doctor in theology. And in the context, he delivers his famous lectures on the Psalms, Romans, and Galatians. It's while he's doing that, that he comes right up against JT and the indulgence thing. And so we've come full circle. And at this point in Luther's life, He realizes that this indulgence thing is a scam. You know, it's not just today. You're getting messages about beware of scams. Yeah, it happened way back then too. And it wasn't right on any level. The people were being scammed. And and Luther thought, I have to oppose this. And what he realized, and what is important for us to realize is this. That in the opposing of the system of indulgences, Luther was taking on the medieval church. You see, the question was this. How can a man or woman or boy or girl know they are right with God? How can you know that your sins are forgiven? And the medieval church thought it had the answer to that as remains today with, uh, within Roman Catholicism. Uh, You can be made right with God by a religious professional doing something for you, whether it's in your baptism or on receiving the mass or in uh, going to confessional, saying the rosary, giving evidence of your contrition or whether it's last rites or whatever. It's we will do it for you and we'll tell you what to do. And we will tell you how it works. We'll tell you how you can know. But Luther was saying, (laughs) but I didn't know. 
and I didn't understand. But now I do know. And now I do understand. And that was the great amazing, amazing reality to him. At the beginning of 1521, he goes to the Diet of Worms, Council of Church Leaders, who had been convened to give Luther the opportunity to retract what he had been saying. Medieval church realized, boy, if this thing gets out of the bag, who knows where it's going to go? Little did they know. And Luther, on that occasion, is given the opportunity to retract what he had been brave enough to be saying. What, he'd be, what had he been brave enough to be saying? Well, you know, he had been, he had been brave enough to say, the Bible is up here. Okay, see this book, this book is up here and the church is underneath. Okay, that was reversed by the medieval church. They were saying the church is up here and the Bible's underneath. And the church will tell you what the Bible says, and Luther says, no, the Bible's up here in the church. The Bible tells the church what to believe and what to say. And so they said, does that mean that councils and popes could be wrong? Yes, I do, he said. Well, that didn't go down well. Yes, I do. My conscience must submit to the word of God. So it's a, a conscience informed by the scriptures. A conscience informed by the Bible. My conscience must submit to the word of God to go against conscience informed by God's word is unholy and dangerous. And therefore, I cannot and will not retract. Here I stand, I can do no other, so help me God, amen. So the theological question is this. How are sinful fallen men and women, alienated, separated from God, dead in trespasses and sins, how on earth are they made right with a holy and a righteous God? Particularly in Luther's case, he was asking the question, how can I have a sense of pardon? How can I have a sense of, forgive, uh, of uh, pardon and know that my sin is forgiven? Right, that, that's alien in our contemporary world, isn't it? That's an alien thought in our contemporary world. People don't ask that question. They're not interested in that question. How can I have my sins forgiven? Now, obviously, there were advantages for Luther because Luther and the Reformers lived in an era when there was no doubt about the reality of sin. And at the same time, they knew they needed salvation. They needed forgiveness. They needed, um, you know, a relationship with God. That's vastly different, isn't it, from from where we are at this morning. You know, these things aren't even on the, the radar of most people. And so if it's so vastly different, if they were aware of sin... If they were aware of needing salvation, and we have no acknowledgement of sin because it's written out of the equation, and nobody sins anymore, it's all psychological or whatever, and you have no uh, idea that you need salvation, is there any common thread that ties the separation of 500 years 
Well, the answer is yes. Here's the unifying thread. When people in Luther's day, uh, what, what the people in Luther's day could not say with any assurance was this. They couldn't say with the Apostle Paul, and as we were singing this morning, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. They had no awareness of the finished work of Christ, and therefore they had no sense of being justified before God, and therefore, or thereby, free from condemnation. They did not know that Jesus had made full provision for sin on the cross. Uh, They had no way of knowing whether they would be saved or what might await them in the next life. Now, all of that, when you think about it, it is fairly contemporary. Here's the point of connection, admittedly for different reasons, but a connection nonetheless. People today have no awareness of the finished work of Christ. They do not know that Jesus has made full provision for sin, and none of them can say no condemnation. Now I dread. So friends, do you see the unifying principle? Both ages share the fact that the sufficiency of Christ and his atoning death was not, is not, understood. In the religious context, they did not understand the significance of a once-for-all sacrifice for sin in the contemporary, contemporary context. People don't understand the significance of a once-for-all sacrifice for sin. They say, what on earth are you talking about? Jesus on a cross? What's that all about? You know, we understand that he was a philosopher... He was a good person, one of many religious leaders. But but Jesus dying on a cross? Come on. What relevance is that to me? How how on earth is that going to get my mortgage paid? What difference does it make in my everyday life? Where does that fit in? Jesus dying on a cross. Where does that come in? Who came up with that stuff? And so you see, friends, what uncovered Luther? And what then was declared by Luther, which is the doctrine of justification by faith alone in Christ alone, was what started a fire raging through Europe transformed Europe and it is the same message that has to be recovered rediscovered reaffirmed reproclaimed in every generation including our generation this doctrine of justification by faith has been central to the standing or the falling of the church of Jesus Christ what is justification by faith I'll define it for you from the shorter catechism. Question 33. Question. 
What is justification by faith? Answer. Justification is an act of God's grace wherein he pardons all our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. In other words, righteousness is not a righteousness produced by us. It's a righteousness provided for us, imputed to us. My account is completely bankrupt. It's way in the red. But to my account is placed all the provision of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it goes into credit. He takes all of my sin. And he gives me all of his righteousness. It is a sweet exchange. Oh, sweet exchange. Oh, unsearchable operation. Oh, the benefits surpassing all expectation. That the wickedness of many should be hid in a single righteous one. And that the righteous one should justify many transgressors. Now this great exchange is the heart of the good news. I stand condemned in the dock and the charges are read out to the judge and there's no ifs, buts, maybes, mitigating circumstances, guilty. And the wages of sin is death. But in the courtroom one stands up before the throne of God above. I have a strong, a perfect plea. And Jesus Christ stands up and he says, Your honor, I have paid the debt. I have died in the sinner's place. And all of his righteousness is transferred to me. And so as you read through Paul's letters, not only in Romans, but in all of his letters, it comes across. That's why we slipped in a reading from 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Where he talks about the wonder of God's reconciling sinners to himself. And he says, God was not counting their sin against them. How come? Well, he gives the explanation. Because he counted their sins against Christ. So that he who knew no sin became sin for us. That we might become the righteousness of God in him. My sin to the account of Christ. Christ's righteousness to my account. Now, in drawing this to a close. Let's note this. This is unique to Christianity. You know, you could do your comparative religion in school. Maybe some of you have come through school, RE classes where you've done comparative religions. Christianity cannot be compared to any other religion under the sun. And all the systems of religion, all the ideologies, all the philosophies, you will not find anything that comes close to this. 
This is unique to Christianity because it is a gospel of free forgiveness. And a new life for those who have done nothing to deserve it, but have done everything to deserve judgment and condemnation instead. The whole worldly system of thought is this, I'm just going to have to be as good as I can and possibly, you know, if I do enough, uh, God might accept me in the, at the end of the day. The gospel says no matter how good you are, you will never be good enough. And that was Luther's dilemma. In other words, friends, religion, religion starts from down here and tries to work its way up to God. You know, if I do A, B, C, and D, if I do this, that, and the other, maybe I'll get up high enough. In Christianity, it's God who takes the initiative. Christianity starts up there. And God comes down, breaks into the scene of time in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, and God takes the initiative to deal with our problem. And just in case you've missed it, what is the problem? The problem, the problem is, is God. Have you got that? The problem is God. The problem is God because God is a God of wrath. And God will pour out his wrath on the, on the sinner. And so how are you going to deal with God's wrath? And God is also a God of love and a God of mercy. How are you going to, how are you going to reconcile God's wrath and God's love? Well, how do you deal with God generously fulfilling the punishment of sin? Because he's holy and righteous and he has to punish sin. And yet, fully, freely expressing his love for sinners. Well, that, you see, takes us to the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is why the solas of the Reformation, which our brother John will be, God willing, covering next year. Why those solas are so important. The message of the gospel is that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. You say, Billy, where on earth do you get all of that? Well, from the Bible alone, and Scripture alone. Do you see what I'm saying? It takes the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ to understand this question of the justice of God and the love of God. Verse 26 of our reading, how can God be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ? How can God be just and the justifier of the one who believes? The location for the logic of justification is found at Calvary because in the cross of Christ, the wrath of God and the mercy of God meet. In the cross of Christ, his love and his justice is displayed. Through the cross, God pardons those who believe in Christ, even though they only deserve his condemnation. And in that way, he displays his justice and his perfect righteousness by executing the punishment that our sins deserve upon his own beloved son and crediting his son's righteousness to us. Luther realized that this righteousness was from God from first to last. 
whereby the sinner is able to stand in God's presence in a clothing that comes from Christ and is received by faith. It's a gift. It's not an attainment. God's declaration that the believer is in a right relationship with him is made by God at the start of the Christian life, as soon as you repent of your sin. It's not given out at the end as a medal, you know, because of how well you've done and you've ticked all the right boxes. No, beloved. No. In Christ alone, my hope is found. He, he is my hope. He is the one that I'm resting in. He's my cornerstone. He's my strength. He's my song. It's in Christ alone my hope is found. What about you? Is your hope found in Christ alone? Are you a new creature in Christ Jesus? Are you born again? Has your burdened soul found liberty? Have you found peace through the cross of Christ? 